John chapter 7, Jesus has some penetrating words for us this morning, words that are going to make all of us think whether you've been a Christian for a long time or just a short time, or you're, you're not a believer or you're kind of on the fence, maybe just considering the things of the faith. Um, either way, these teachings of Jesus here in John chapter 7 are going to make you think and going to penetrate the deepest levels and challenge your natural thinking in revolutionary ways. Each one of us applies to every single one of us in here. So John chapter 7, David read the text earlier. We're going to be in verses 14 through 24. But as we get started, I want you to think about this expression. Maybe you've heard this, probably a lot of you have heard this. And I'm going to have you fill in the blank for me, okay? So Christianity is not a religion, it's a blank. Relationship, that's right. I I suspected many of you have heard that, like myself. So Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's something that is said commonly, and it's, it's conveying this idea, and, and it's maybe oversimplified a little bit. It's a brief statement, but it's kind of conveying this idea that there's, there's more to the faith than simply our activities or rituals, that there's, it suggests that there's this way of even doing religion or practicing supposedly spiritual things but to do so in a way that is actually natural and, and simply just goes along with our normal way of thinking and operating. And there's a way that we can actually, in all our endeavors to kind of serve God or honor God or be a part of the things of God, we can actually miss God, miss the heart of God, miss the, the offer of God in terms of the life of God and all that He is for us through Christ. That's kind of what that expression is getting at, I think, and I think it's helpful And what we're going to see here in John chapter 7 is Jesus challenging that religious part of us, the the natural part of us that seeks to hijack the things of God for its own purposes, its own ends, and which robs us of true life and true freedom and true joy. And so God loves us enough, just as he ministered to the people back then, he is ministering to us today to reach us at those deep levels of our hearts, to reach us with his truth which sets free So there's some valuable things for us to hear this morning, revolutionary things for us to hear, and I'm going to give you up front the outline, okay? This is my outline up front, three main ideas. First of all, we're going to see Jesus confronting the glory-seeking of religion. Then we're going to see Jesus confronting the scorekeeping of religion, and then we're going to see Jesus offering to give us life. So you see the title up on the screens next to me. Basically, going along with the title, we have these three main ideas that we'll see in this passage. But let's start in verse 14, and here this sets the context for us. It says in verse 14, But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. This is during a Jewish feast, and it's known as the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or we could say in our modern vernacular here, the Feast of Tents, okay? And it goes back to the Old Testament and God leading his people, the Israelites, through Egypt, or out of Egypt, should say, through the wilderness. And there are places in the Old Testament where God said, you're to have this feast, this celebration, seven days of basically like a holiday, okay? Uh, So I'm going to read to you from Leviticus 23, verses 42 and 43. This is one of the places God prescribes this feast. He says, you shall live in booths or tents for seven days, All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. 
so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So there he is highlighting this idea of the temporal nature of their stay in the wilderness. They were staying in tents. It was all temporary. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't like brick and concrete, right? It was temporary. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. Notice what he says here about this holiday. He says, you shall celebrate the Feast of Booths And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and your female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Now if you notice several times as I read that section in Deuteronomy, he mentions the idea of joy. This is a very joyful celebration, time of rejoicing. And they would actually, it was a time of harvest, and so they had a plentiful food available to them. And he said, get together, have seven days of feasting, and remember what I did for you when I led you out of Egypt and when I provided for you in the wilderness. So it has that idea of God's provisions for his people back then. And they were continuing to celebrate this feast. And not only did it have that kind of commemoration of what had happened previously, but it was also a reminder to them that their stay on earth is temporary. There are places in the New Testament where it says that that our bodies are like tents, temporary habitations for us. They're not eternal. They're not themselves. They will have an eternal state, but they're not in this form everlasting. They're, they're breaking down. We talk about that frequently. And so they're called tents. And we have in John's gospel, this is where it's amazing how all of scripture points to the glory and magnificence of Jesus. In John chapter 1, we are told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You may remember that from uh, your own study or we, we had that sermon way back when, when we started the gospel of John together. I think it was Pastor Rob preached that section. But this idea of Jesus, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, that word dwelling is actually the word tabernacling. If you can turn it into a verb, tenting. Jesus tented with us, meaning that our almighty God took upon himself human flesh. He inhabited human flesh. With all its limitations and temptations, he inhabited human flesh. So he became man. He lived in a way in a booth, so to speak, in terms of his body. And so we have in the Gospel of John this idea of God being with his people through Christ, God in the flesh, and he is offering himself and offering life. And if there's ever a reason to celebrate, this was the reason to celebrate because their very God was with them. In the most intimate of ways ever, God was with them. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the name of Christ, right? So he was with them. And so here's what's happening. In this context, Jesus is appealing to devout religious people who are practicing all of these rituals and traditions, and rightly so, but they're missing the main point. It's kind of like this. Years ago, I, I lived in Florida, and I worked for a real estate company, and our boss would once in a while take us to what was one of my favorite restaurants in Tampa, Florida, called Shula's, named after the legendary coach Don Shula of the Miami Dolphins. Some of you know who he is. Amazing coach, amazing record, highly respected. Well, when you walk into Shula's, you see posters and pictures and signed you know, autographs of things. And there's actually a bronze bust of Don Shula right there in the restaurant when you walk in. And, and it had delicious food, so we loved going to Shula's. And so everything there was sort of pointing to, reminding you of how magnificent Don Shula was. Imagine if Don Shula walked into that restaurant. 
Imagine he walks in there, and the host says to him, uh, name and number in your party, sir. Imagine that. Imagine if Don Shula said, hey, I've got a special announcement. I've got good news to share with everyone in the restaurant. And they said, sir, I'm sorry, you're going to have to keep it down. We're, you know, if you don't keep this down, we're going to have to call the authorities. I mean, you can't say anything. Just, you know. Imagine if they treated him like anyone else. That would, be, that would make no sense. Like the whole place exists for him. He's Don Shula. It's named after him. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the most clear and profound manifestation of God's provisions for his people in our temporal stay on earth. That's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And here he is, and look what it says in verse 15. The Jews then were astonished, hearing his teaching, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So this is where we begin to see, and it's all going to become clear in verse 18, but we begin to see their obsession with human glory, glory-seeking. Okay? They're, they're thinking on a certain human natural wavelength of what is glorious and what isn't, and they don't deem him glorious, and they don't deem him worthy of the, any kind of respect or listening. They really don't. He doesn't look the part of a rabbi. He doesn't seem to be educated. He was a carpenter. And he was a big problem for them, and, and they weren't receiving his presence well. So they're questioning. They're, they're sitting, really, in a sense, they're sitting in judgment over him. Instead of questioning their own ways of thinking and their own practices and trusting in him, instead they were questioning him. I mean, imagine the audacity of that. But that's exactly what's going on. Verse 17 if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God. Uh, I just realized, I jumped, I think I leapfrogged verse 16. Back up, verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This is what he's been saying all along. I am from God, I am not from this realm, and my teaching is not from this realm. Continuing on, verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Pause there for a moment. We have some challenging words of Jesus. He is challenging them in, in a pretty powerful way. These are people who believed they were doing the will of God. They were committed to the things of God. And he says, well, if anyone's really willing to do his will, he'll know whether this teaching is from God or not. And they were believing that it was not from God. I mean, think of the irony of there. Again, these are the people, these are the religious people. These are the people who claim to know God and know the most about Him. Who had that heritage and, and the hierarchy of the Jewish authority figures and the Pharisees and all of that. And he says, well, if you're really in touch with God, if you're really in touch with the heart of God, then you'll know what I'm saying is true. And it's not from me, but it's from Him. And this is where it all starts to crystallize in terms of their obsession with glory they're glory hounds okay so verse 18 he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him notice one very small word preposition verse 18 it's the word from Right in the beginning. He who speaks from 
himself. Seems like such a throwaway word, but it's so significant here. Because what he's saying is, those who speak from themselves as if they are the origin of truth, as if they are the origin of spirituality or life, those who speak from themselves, this is what they're after, he says. They're after glory. Now, what's subtle about this, again, is the fact that these are religious people. They talked about God all the time. They would quote the Old Testament, the Torah, all the time. So what is he getting at here? Well, he's saying, well, still, even in all of their supposed spirituality and religiosity, they're still really just obsessed with themselves and who they are and what they have sort of on the inside, what they have to offer, whether they're learning their ability, their commitments, their dedication, their discipline, whatever, that's still where it's all coming from as the origin. If you look this preposition up, it has to do with origin. As the origin of what is valuable, they're still actually looking to themselves. They're believing it comes from themselves. And what they're after is glory and honor for themselves. They want good things for themselves. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is human nature. This is the way of mankind. This is natural. It, it, it's obvious to say, like in, in our culture today, it'd be obvious to say, well, certain influencers online or on television or on the movies, well, they're just out for their own glory. It's so obvious. They have books with their, their title of the book has their name in it and their big face is on the front of the book. I mean, we know certain people in our culture who are, again, these influencers out there. We know them. We would all, all say readily, oh yeah, they're just in it for their own glory. Where we don't see it as seductively is within each one of our own hearts, there is still this obsession with glory and honor for ourselves. The disciples were not immune to it and neither are we. Remember James and John. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, all the time they spent with him, and still they're appealing to him, hey, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? And they even involved their mom in it. If you look, I think it's Matthew's account, their mom gets involved. Come on, can you give them a good spot? Because they wanted great things for themselves, didn't they? I mean, Jesus was worthy of following, but he was also useful to them in some way, something they were trying to get out of it for their own honor. And, and, and even, let's go a layer deeper, where does that come from? Well, it comes from this place of, hey, I, I, we, can, we got something, we got some skin in the game here. So think of Peter, when, when Jesus says, hey, these are the things that are about to unfold. It's about to go badly, and I'm going to be turned over and betrayed and all of this. And Peter says, it's never going to happen. And he says, and this is fascinating, just rem- remember this recently, but in Mark's account of this, this is what Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I mean, he was adamant. I will not deny you, Jesus. He was, he was thinking about himself and what he could muster within, his own, the own fiber of his being, his constitutional makeup. He said, I, I will not deny you. And now notice this in Mark's account. And this is easily forgotten because we like to pick on Peter. But notice this. And they were all saying the same thing also. They were all saying that. Jesus will not deny you. We're going to go to death with you. It'll never happen. Isn't that interesting? You see, it wasn't really Peter talking. I mean, it was Peter. But it was the flesh talking. Because that's what the flesh says. The flesh says, I can do it. If you, when you start a statement, say if, when you start a statement in the realm of anything to do with spirituality or love or righteousness, when you start the statement with the pronoun I, that's the flesh talking. That's the flesh talking. 
seeing somehow there's something in I'm going to, well, yeah, it's God, yes, the Holy Spirit, but it's also me. It's from ourselves, and it's after glory. And we don't even realize sometimes that that's what we're after. We want good things. We want to manage life. And, and so then the, it sort of begs the question, well, how does this proceed? Like, what keeps this glory fest going? Well, we're, we're going to see in just a moment what keeps it going. There's a certain MO of this glory seeking. But first, I just want you to notice what Jesus says about himself. He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no what? Do you see it? There is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus comes, God in the flesh, and gives all the glory to his Father. It's all about his Father's will. It's all about serving his Father and serving other people. It is complete and utter, in a very real sense, self-forgetfulness on the part of Christ. That is true righteousness. Wow. Wow. Christ's approach is so radically different than ours. This fleshly mindset is, is still a part of our nature, and, and until we're home, it'll be something that we either struggle with because we're aware of it, or we cover for it and deny it and minimize it, but it's there. It's there within every one of us, as it was with the disciples, as it was with the religious Jews and the Pharisees and the people that Jesus is directly addressing here. It was there with his brothers. We saw that earlier in John chapter 7. They're saying, hey, go, go to the feast and show yourself. I mean, go show off. It's the way they were thinking. That's the natural way. So again, what keeps it going? So now we get to our second main idea here of scorekeeping. Okay? So we talked about glory seeking. Let's talk about scorekeeping. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? I mean, okay, let's talk about authority figures. He knows their highest, most esteemed authority figure is Moses, in a human sense. And he says, hey, Moses gave you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? None of you, literally, it's none of you does the law. We'll say a little bit more about that later. But none of you does the law. None of you carries out the law. Or I think in your ESV it might say none of you keeps the law or fulfills the law, depending on your translation. Now he's, he's referencing here when he says you're seeking to kill me. And by the way, they disagree or they, they, don't, they won't admit it. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? But we know, we've read it several times in this gospel. In fact, earlier in chapter 7, verse 1, it says they were seeking to kill him. And that's not the first time it said it. Like, he knew exactly what was going on in their hearts and minds. They were out for him. They were out to get him. He was a huge problem for them and their establishment, their sense of security, their sense of control, their sense of honor. They, he was a huge threat. And they were out to kill him, and he knew it. And here he says, well, why are you seeking to kill me? You're the ones who are breaking the law all the time. Well, I mean, again, those are fighting words. What? We're the most dedicated. We're the most diligent with regard to the law. What are you talking about? He says, yeah, well, none of you are keeping it. None of you. And you seek to kill me? And then he says in verse 21, I did one deed and you all marvel. Now, this is all referring back to the man he healed in John chapter 5, the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. He healed on the Sabbath day. And in their minds, he violated the Sabbath day law because he worked on the Sabbath day in their minds. And so now he's going to say, all right, well, let's, let's play with that idea a little bit, law keepers. 
Verse 22, for this reason, Moses gave you circumcision, not because it's from Moses really, but from the fathers. goes all the way back to the time of Abraham, of course. He says, and on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? So he's saying, well, what are you, what are you going to do with this one, law keepers? I mean, on the Sabbath day, when you're not supposed to do anything, you circumcise a young boy to keep the Sabbath law. So you have these two laws that are seemingly in conflict, and you prioritize one over the other. So why are you giving me a hard time? When I healed a man, of course, showing compassion, this is the irony, okay? This is the natural tendency within each one of us and embodied by and um, illustrated most clearly in the Pharisees, but which is also part of us, which is why Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, by the way. But the natural inclination when it comes to things like this is to focus on the minutia of the law, the details of the law, the letter of the law, and miss the spirit of the law. It's like minutia instead of the motive of the law, which is love, love for God, love for others. So Jesus had no problem with healing a man on a Sabbath day, showering a man with mercy, and even telling him to get up and pick up your pallet or your bed and walk, because that was the priority of God. He knew it full well, like everyone else was wrong. So he said, well, if you're going to play that way, you're going to play the scorekeeping way, then what do you do with this? Because you're, you too are you're violating the law technically in terms of the letter of the law if you make some priority of one over the other. So what do you do with that? I mean, he was purposefully confounding them, making them think how even their understanding of the law was flawed. Not that the law was flawed, not at all, but their understanding of it was flawed. And it all goes back to that same little preposition from, by the way. Because they still were thinking that somehow that was an opportunity for them to prove something, earn something. They gave themselves too much credit, as we all tend to do. So the irony here, the tragic irony, is that the lawbreakers are accusing Jesus of lawbreaking. He says, you're drawn to Moses, you're drawn to the law, but you're, you're missing the point, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Why are you angry at me? Why are you accusing me? And then he says, in the end, our last verse for the section, is do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Could be translated, do not judge according to face or surface or outward things, but judge righteous judgment. Judge right judgment. Earlier it said, in Jesus there is no unrighteousness. Jesus saw and continues to see everything clearly. He knows what is true and what is not. And he knows that the scorekeeping charade is that. It's a charade. It's not reality. We can come up with, we can invent these certain metrics. We can even hijack some of the laws and commands of Scripture to turn them into these sort of metrics and lists by which we judge ourselves and everybody else. But in the end, if we're honest, we're all brought to a place of seeing we're all complete failures. Remember he said, none of you does the law. None of you keeps the law. That applies to every single one of us. And this is, listen, when it comes to the grade of this, it's not graded on a scale. It's not like there's an A or a B or you got a C or a D or what. This is like pass or fail. It's a binary. It's a frequently used word these days. 
Here's a more healthy context for it. It's a binary, okay? It's either righteous or unrighteous. And there's only one in the righteous category. And it's Christ. When it comes to mankind, when it comes to those who have lived in the flesh, in this temporary world, there's only one. And it's Him. And He was there. <laughs> in their midst, offering himself, offering his life. And in order to offer himself and offer his life, he had to confront their human addiction to glory and scorekeeping or call it box checking or rule keeping or whatever. It misses the life. It misses our own utter inability and need. It it, uh, minimizes our need and in a delusional way, maximizes some supposed ability that we think we have, the from, it can come from me in some way. James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in just one point has become guilty of all. It is pass or fail. And Jesus says here, everyone fails. Whatever the metrics you choose to use, whatever they are, whatever the surfacey, behavioral things, whatever they are, He says, none of us have any righteousness of our own at all. Zero. And that is, I mean, if we're honest, that's a bit offensive. (laughs) And when we see ourselves like, I believe, the man at the pool of Bethesda must have been seeing himself to some degree as completely and utterly bankrupt and needy, in need of mercy and compassion, in need of God's grace and giving what we don't have, in need of His life. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. We've reiterated over and over and over again. It comes up later in the Gospel where he says, I've, all these things I, I, could have, I could have written, you know, pages that were stacked from here to the highest heaven, but the ones that I recorded, the events I recorded was so that you might see who Jesus is, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in His name. He wants you to have life. And this matter of life and death from a spiritual standpoint, it, it requires, it necessitates that we see that in and of ourselves we don't have it. From the garden forward, the flesh is just dead. It's just death. It doesn't keep it from being active. It's like I remember a buddy of mine years ago, a Bible teacher used to say, it's like when you cut the head off a chicken, flops around for a while. Well, the flesh is still flopping around. And, and one of its ways of operating is, first of all, it's still obsessed with its own glory and will even hijack the things of God for its own glory. And two, it is obsessed with, obsessed with scorekeeping and measurements and those types of metrics because that's the way to prove one's fiber or one's muster. And that has a place in this world. I want to be really clear about this. This is something Pastor Rob and I talk about a lot. How do we communicate this clearly? It's not to say that measurements don't have a place in this world. They absolutely do. Earlier, we honored service members who who achieved the rank they achieved by hard work and certain standards they had to meet and certain activities they had to engage in and training they had to pass through and tests they had to take and pass. So it's a part of life in this natural world. It's a necessary part of life in this natural world. If you're going to achieve anything in the academic realm, in the corporate realm, in the military realm, in the political realm. And that's all fine and good, but that's not spirituality. That's just the way the world works. 
naturally speaking. It's wise. It's proverbial wisdom. I talk to my girls all the time about rest in the spiritual and work in the natural. There's plenty of work to be done, and God uses the work that we do in this natural world. But when it comes to the source of all of it, Jesus says, I am the righteous one, I am life, and you need me. And that's it. That's basically the end of the story. List checking is fantastic for productivity. A lot of good books out there about people who are highly effective and highly productive and all the habits of highly productive people. And usually, one of those habits is they make lists. I love lists. My wife loves lists. We have, I have, if you go in my office, there are sticky notes everywhere with lists. Some of them are all crossed off and completed, and that makes me happy. And some of them are not, and that drives me crazy. That's a natural, even proverbial wisdom, talks about such things that's good. But this is the matter of life here. This is the matter of whether or not we see God for who He really is and ourselves for who we really are. And when it comes to this realm, everything's different. Like for you Mac people, we got Mac versus PC, and that war has been going on forever. This is like whatever your favorite one is, you're naturally inclined to gravitate towards, let's say you're a Mac person, you're, you're gravitating toward that. This is like somebody putting you in a completely different operating system. You're not on iOS anymore, and your mind will be blown, and you're like, oh no, what do I do? It's a completely different way. And what it does is it humbles all of us and it divests us of any false delusion of righteousness or somehow life comes from us or what we do on the outside. It's a heart issue and Jesus diagnoses the heart problem and he offers himself as the remedy and he's the only remedy. And the disciples desperately need it and it was only after his resurrection that they started to get it (laughs) and we need it. And so he offers us himself And he says, judge with righteous judgment. This is the way it really is. This is why some of us have been talking. We have this conversation going on. Maybe you've heard about this documentary that's out. I haven't seen it yet, but it's called Smiley Happy People. It's about the well-known Duggar family who years ago had a reality TV show, Christian family, many, many children, 18 or 19 children. I lost track, but they have a lot of kids. Homeschooling family, very dutiful, very diligent, and, and in many ways admirable. But time goes by, years go by, and what comes out? One dark secret after another to include actual crimes that have been taken place. There's the surface, there's the appearance, there's the face of things, and then there's the reality of things. And now there are documentaries saying, whoa, look at the reality of this and look at the reality of that. So let's just start here with this moment and just say, okay, the reality is, wow, we really shouldn't be surprised that humans are humans, that flesh is flesh. Because our Savior is our hero, not some person. I don't care what their name is, how many followers they have, how many books they've published. He's saying, I am, I'm it. I am what you've got. Just confronts the glory-seeking, the score-keeping, and it's such a plague to us because while it does make the world go round, it's also a short circuit for, for love and unity and relationships and humility and so he offers us life. He offers us himself. I've been saying that throughout, but let me just show you in chapter 7 because it's implicit here a bit in, in the section we're in, but we're going to look at this a little bit later, weeks from now perhaps, but in verse 38, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's saying believe, just believe in me. Trust in me. 
And I know that little voice inside your mind is inside mine too, but wait a minute, what if I just believe that? I mean, if I believe that and I let go of all those things that I feel like I need to control or the boxes I need to check or whatever in my spiritual life, if I let go of all that, what on earth is going to happen? I mean, we're going to go off the rails. Here Jesus says, believe in me. And in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, when he talks about the new covenant, he says, God says, I will. Remember we said earlier, like, be suspicious if you hear I will coming out of your own mouth. Be suspicious, because that's the flesh talking. But when God says, I will, such as in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to take out the heart of flesh, or stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to cause you to walk in my way. When God says, I will, you can take it to the bank. And if something, that little voice in you says, well, what, what, what's going to happen if I believe? That's the flesh again saying, don't, no, don't go there. Don't believe that. Hold on. Hold on to the glory. Hold on to the score sheet. I mean, you've got to fight your way through life and fight against everybody else and compete and scrap and tangle and fight, right? Because that gives you a little bit of honor in this thing. And if you let go of that honor, what do you got left? And Jesus says, well, that's death. Here's what you got left, life. Simply by just believing. You believe and fountains of living water will flow through you. But what are they going to look like and how is it going to be? He just says, I'm going to do it. So we either believe him and experience some freedom, finally, in our lives and some rest, or we just keep clawing. Something to think about for all of us. Jesus loves us enough to, to confront those core lies that we have believed there is only a binary in the spiritual realm you're either god and you're righteous and alive or you're human and you're unrighteous and dead until god gives you his life through christ and if he gives you his life through christ and if he gives you all the fruit all the love all the joy all the peace all the patience through christ then you don't get to control it Harness it for your own gain or your own glory or take credit for it. It's a gift. It's from him, benefits you, and it spills out into the lives of other people in service, in love, in compassion. It's a miracle. It's a completely foreign operating system to our natural way of thinking. Even in the church so frequently, we're operating on the flesh's operating system, and this is the operating system of God in the Spirit. Christ is the source. One last observation from our passage here, and I like to look at the um, original sometimes just because there's all these different translations today, and a lot of you have this ESV, and then there's the, um, the new one that people are using, the Christian Standard Bible is a popular one these days, and I have an NASB from the 90s here, and so there's all these different translations. So sometimes I like to observe okay, what's in the original and, and, and see the wording there, and when you do that, it's an interesting observation here. In, in verse 17, when he says, uh, if anyone's willing to do his will, it's a certain Greek verb for doing, okay? Often translated doing or making. And then in verse 19, the same verb occurs again where he says, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out, in my translation, but really it's the word do. It's that same verb. None of you does the law. So we have here two options, Okay. There's the doing of the will of the Father, and the doing of the will of the Father is coming to the Son, believing in the Son, trusting in the Son, turning away from the from of me within and looking to the from of Him. 
as the origin and the source of all life. There's that kind of doing, and then there's the doing of the law. And of that doing, he says, none of you are successful. We're humanly drawn to it. We want to ask, what can I do? We're afraid of what happens if we don't do. But he's inviting us here to see the will of the Father, the will of God, which is to grant you freely as a gift his life. All the love, all the joy, all the peace. We get foretaste of it now, one day fullness, but we get foretaste through his spirit now, but all of grace, all received by faith. Jesus tabernacling among us. I have one last thing to share and I'll close. This is a book I've been reading through. This theologian is wrestling with some of these ideas and and I just want you to hear what he says. He says, we tend to live by a certain ritual. I will do this, I will do that, and I will be okay. In these liturgies, both the worshiper and the worshipped are the same. The ego. The self. We strive all our life to see ourselves as keepers of rules we cannot keep. As loyal subjects of laws under which we can only be judged outlaws. Yet so deep is our need to derive our identity from our own self-respect. So profound is our conviction that unless we watch our step, the watchbird will take away our name, that we will spend a lifetime trying to do the impossible rather than for even one carefree minute consent to having it done for us by someone else. Jesus is that someone else. He did it for you. You can rest The fruitfulness of his spirit is born in the soil of that humility and rest. May God help us to receive his grace as he offers it to us so freely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John chapter 7. Thank you for the scandalous message of the gospel. Most of us have heard it for many years. Yet in some ways we've, we've been seduced by the flesh to move beyond it or to depart from it so often tempted to look to ourselves, to look for something from ourselves. And we end up either blind and arrogant, self-righteous, or we end up completely defeated and dejected and demoralized and just walk away from the whole thing. It's usually one or the other extreme with us. You know that. And you know the seductive nature of the flesh sinister nature of the flesh. Throughout your word, you have so frequently warned us about it. And along with that, you've done what what we need for you to do most, which is you have unveiled your glory before us. You have literally shown us your heart in blazing color. You've invited us to look up and be saved, to look to the cross, to look to Christ loving us at our worst dying for his enemies, and to see the kind of love that we humanly just naturally don't have. And so we're left only to put our faith in you. You're all we've got. And you use people, you use leaders, and you use authors and authority figures, and we're thankful for that, but they're also flawed humans, and we pray you'd help us to realize that, to believe that, to judge righteous judgment, to decide these matters in the way you decide these matters, which is to see the binary, to see there is, there is your way, there is your truth, there is your life, 
And then there is humanity. Then there is the flesh. Then there is our fallen nature and our rebellion and our arrogance and our pride and our trying even to be like you so that we might be our own little sovereigns. And you so graciously confront us. You speak truth to us that penetrates to the deepest levels of our soul and our heart. And you speak words of life, comfort, and mercy. And you awaken us to new life in relationship with you. Help us to walk with you honestly, with authenticity. Help us as we do so to see the way you've loved us and even as you've loved us to seek to love other people as you've loved us. We look to your spirit for the fulfillment of that, your only hope. We thank you for what you're up to, even in this service this morning, for the ways that you have both confronted and comforted hearts. Thank you for the blessing of gospel clarity. And thank you for each one of us being able to be here this morning and enjoy this time together. Be with us as we sing now. Help us to worship and celebrate what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.